if you're a guest with us this morning. Um, my name is Jordan, and I serve at our NDG congregation as a local pastor there. And really grateful that I can be here, though, with you uh, this morning. Like he mentioned, controversial topic, gender. We're uh, in week three of our September series. And you might have remembered, maybe you I don't think most people would notice this, but we actually had gender and sexuality, and this week we just said, you know what, we're going to parse that out. You know, there's a lot to this, and so in two weeks from now, we'll actually cover um, the topic. Topic of gender separately, um, or sexuality separately today is gender. There we go. Think about what you're saying, Jordan. Okay. <laughs> gender. Today is gender. Um, and I want to I preface this by saying, not only is it upsetting, okay, but I might misspeak, or I might speak intentionally, and you might not like it, okay? And I would just plead with you, please do not leave upset, okay? I'm going to be at the back after, and I would love to talk to you. I'd love to hear your story, okay? Let's pray. Lord, um, would you open our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, submit us to your word, and change us by your power. It's only you. I need you. Amen. Let's start by looking at some cultural things. December 1952, this is well before many of our time, at least for many in this room, a George Georgensen, he was a World War II uh, soldier, he underwent gender reassignment surgery in Denmark. It's in 1952 because it was really the only place that you could do it. George, who now identifies as Christine, um, that story became publicized as the first major story of the transgender experience. It was the cover story of the New York Daily News, and in the article, it quoted them saying, nature made a mistake which I have corrected, and I am now your daughter. And over the next 70 years, we're 70 years removed from that surgery, culture has become increasingly aware of the reality of the transgender experience. Another example, 1976, was what in Montreal? It was the Summer Olympics. There's still a big stadium. You can't miss it, right? In 1976, someone by the name of Bruce Jenner won the gold medal for the decathlon. He made headlines for that. And he made headlines again in 2005. Um, they made headlines again in 2005, this time in a, a Vanity Fair article called Call Me Caitlin, okay, in which they, their experience of coming out as a transgender woman was described as an act of bravery, resilience, and courage. And stories like this, they're commonplace, right? This is not just, you know, celebrities and, and, and shows. No, it's, it's our friends. It's our friends out there, and it's also our friends in here, or maybe even us, right, who are wrestling with these questions. And as you hear about those who are wrestling with these questions, or maybe it's you yourself, you know how tragic these stories can become, stories of exclusion and bullying and confusion. And this is reality. It's happening in our culture. There's been changes happening in our legislation as well. You can now mark X on your passport in Canada, not M or F. Parents, here's another thing, have lost custody of their children in multiple Canadian provinces for not supporting their desire to transition in their gender identity. January this year in Canada, Bill C-6, an act to prohibit conversion therapy was passed. Conversion therapy in that law broadly defined as any treatment, service, or practice aimed at changing, repressing, or reducing your sexual orientation or gender away or towards, sorry, cis or hetero norms. Terms that we might get to explain a bit later, okay? And I know I'm unloading a lot of information here without giving the Christian response, but here is what is clear, right? Is that we need to respond, right? This, these changes, they affect us, okay? We care about this, and we need not to be silent. In fact, guys, we have one of the largest transgender LGBTQI plus communities in the world right here in our own city 
Okay, and the people in that community, and maybe this is you here too, okay, you wonder, is the church a safe place? Is the church a safe place? And I want to assure you with the words of Jesus. Jesus said this, I love this, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, okay? This is the Jesus I'm talking about. And the gospel he brings, I promise you, is always good news for all people, at all places, and all times, especially the marginalized in the vulnerable. Come on, the gospel is always good news. And so that means our response to it then, as we talk about it, must be characterized by compassion and love. But also by the truth that Jesus taught which is our convictions, both. And so I hope you'll find that the church today is a safe place for you. Before we get into the biblical response, what I'm going to do today is actually, we do not all come from the same context. Some of you, you're going to be hearing what I'm saying. You're like, yeah, like, of course. Some of you grew up in a different culture and context. And I, so I want to make sure that we're all on the same page with what we're talking about here. Let me explain some of the terminology being used. Um, you can throw the slide forward. I pulled this diagram from our elementary school curriculum here, here in Machacana. This is what, as you can see, is called the gender uh, unicorn. And there's some five different categories here that I'm going to walk you through now. Okay, first, let me start in the middle, sex. So we know what sex is. It's, um, not, it's sex is based on your biology, you know, chromosomes, genitalia, uh, so on. But I want you to look at, note the the language that is used here, okay? It says sex assigned at birth, okay? The word assigned there, it's trying to communicate, this diagram is trying to communicate that your sex is not you. It's just assigned to you or opposed on you by some doctor. And it's assigned at birth. In other words, your sex doesn't have to determine your whole life. No, it's your sex assigned at birth. This is what this diagram is communicating. And of course, what is the biblical response to that? We, haven't, we will get into that, okay? Um, and you'll notice beside it, it says there's male and, and there's female and there's other or intersex. Now, now, what is intersex? An intersex person is not necessarily somebody who identifies as transgender, right? So if you go the LGBTQI, it's the I, okay? So the I is different than the T, Okay, it's, uh, the I stands for, for intersex, and somebody who's intersex is somebody who is born with atypical genitalia or chromosomes. Okay, these are rare abnormalities. They affect about 0.02% of the population, or one person in about 5,000. Okay, now unlike this diagram, I think it's important I point out that while here you see three separate sex categories, Doctors do not recognize intersex as a third category or sex or gender, okay? They don't refer to it as a third gender. They refer to it as a disorder of sexual uh, development, okay? That's not a, a third gender, but a blend of male and female. So that's over and against what this diagram or graphic is showing us. And I checked. The Intersex Society of North America makes this statement about this. Intersex people are perfectly comfortable with either a male or female gender identity, and they're not seeking a genderless society or to label themselves as a member of a third gender class. Interesting. Okay. So that's that first category, sex assigned at birth, okay? Let's drop down, there's two below it, physically and emotionally attracted to, okay? That has to do with your romantic interests, and we're gonna get into that in two weeks when we talk about sexuality, okay? Um, let's go up to the top. Uh, gender, now it's important that I point out that the way that we define gender today is that gender is not synonymous with sex, okay? That's something that has changed culturally and it informs a lot of this conversation. We do not view culturally when people say gender, they're not usually talking about it as synonymous with sex. Rather, they're thinking about uh, gender as one's internal sense of self their true inner self or their authentic self, okay? And so you can see from that that sex and gender have become disconnected in our thinking. And that's why you see separate categories up here 
on the screen. And just to be very clear about what we're talking about when it comes to sex and gender and sexuality and gender, here's a quote from Rosaria Butterfield that I found helpful, okay? She says, whereas your sexuality is all about who you go to bed with, your gender identity is about who you go to bed as, okay? Your sexuality about who you go to bed with, your gender identity about who you go to bed as. There's a difference between the discussion on sexuality and on gender. Okay. Now, if gender identity, as we saw, was your internal sense of self, your internal sense of who you are, then gender expression, that last category in the bright green, would be your external sense, how you, how you express that. So your clothing, your mannerisms, your name, and so on. Okay, that's that for the diagram. You can, you can switch it back. So this moves us to the point where we can talk about what does it mean to be transgender, right? Well, transgender is where your biological sex does not match your gender identity. So you might be biologically, to use the the language of this diagram, assigned female at birth, and yet you find yourself, you feel yourself to be male, or vice versa. You might be assigned uh, male at birth, and then you feel yourself to be female. And somebody who embraces that, who says, I will identify in that way, will be referring to themselves as a trans man or a trans woman, okay? That's important to know. This is what transgender is. But it's also important to know that transgender is an umbrella term, okay? And so there are different reasons that somebody might adopt the term transgender within the transgender community, okay? One reason I've already given you, there's the possibility of intersex, although most do not want to take that label and sit under that umbrella. Here's another one. This is a major one, and we're going to unpack it now here. Gender dysphoria is a reason that somebody might sit under the transgender umbrella. And that's that feeling of being trapped in the wrong body. This is how it's often described. The feeling of being trapped in the one, uh, wrong body. Here's a quote from somebody uh, describing their lived experience. They describe their, their body as feeling like a suffocating costume that you are unable to take off. Okay? A suffocating costume. You can't take it off. It's that feeling that you do not belong with your very body. Like, imagine that feeling. I can, I can, like, if I tilt this right, I can see myself. Imagine every time you're, like, looking at your phone and you see your reflection, or you walk by a store and you see your reflection, or you look in the mirror and you see your reflection, you're like, oh, like, that's not me. What, how distressing that would be. How disorienting that would be. And you're like, oh, it's this costume, and yet you can't take it off. A sense of not belonging in your own body. That's gender dysphoria. Now, about 10 years ago, most of the cases of this would start in the age range of about uh, six to nine for boys. Um, and the origins continue to be unknown, but it was understood to be largely a biological uh, phenomena, but not completely. And then it would change over the course of someone's life for most of the people. But today, that has changed. Most of the cases are not young boys. They are preteen girls. Overwhelmingly have replaced that stat. And so it's actually been called a new thing. It's called rapid onset gender dysphoria. And researchers have named it differently and as such because they're recognizing that there's something different going on here. It doesn't just seem to be a sort of biological phenomena or something that people are struggling with. There seems to be a societal component to this, something researchers name a craze phenomena. Okay? All of this gender dysphoria and rapid onset gender dysphoria and sometimes intersex is happening under this giant umbrella called transgenderism. Okay? It's also important I note that the mental health here is, is bad. It's tragic. That the, the rates of anxiety and depression and suicide when compared to the other members of the population are far far higher and continue to move in that direction. And so the question being asked culturally is, what do we do? How do we move about trying to help, treat, and provide solutions to those who struggle under this umbrella, and especially those with gender dysphoria? Let me look at three approaches, and then we're going to be looking 
at the biblical response. So the first response culturally that we're giving is what we call affirmative therapy. Okay, so affirmative therapy is where you listen to the felt, uh, the, the feelings and the desires of, in the, of the individual and you affirm them in those feelings and desires. So you help them transition into that felt gender identity. Okay, and as of recently, this is the only approach, if you go to a clinic, that you will be recommended or will be talked about with you. The affirmative therapy approach has four steps to it. The first is that you socially transition, so dress or name. The second, you would go on puberty blockers if you're prepubescent. Third, you take cross-sex hormones. And then finally, perhaps you would take a sex reassignment surgery. That's where genitalia is cut off and or modified. Okay, so that is what affirmative therapy is. Okay, next, reparative therapy. Reparative therapy, what is the difference between affirmative and reparative therapy? Okay, Re uh, affirmative therapy or reparative therapy, the difference is that rather than trying to alter your body, which was affirmative therapy, to align with your mind, you try and, and counsel the mind to align with the body. Does that make sense? Affirmative therapy, you alter the body to match the mind. Reparative, you counsel the mind to match the body. And so you can see there's a different uh, uh, philosophical theory under guiding, undergirding the second approach, okay? And it's, 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 it's based that on this belief that gender then is not entirely a social construct, but it is rooted in your biological sex. And so the goal of re reparative therapy is to, to make somebody comfortable with their biological sex. Now, it's also important I mention that this approach has been made illegal in Canada, okay? The reparative therapy approach has been made illegal under the conversion therapy laws, which broadly defined, okay, had the intention of taking out coercive and abusive practices that were repressing and hurting people, which I support, okay? But the law went wider than that. Now, why then would someone ever support reparative therapy? Let's look at what a few experts say. Here's Ken Zucker, one of the world's top gender cl clinicians, arguably maybe the world's top based in Toronto. If a five-year-old black kid came into the clinic and said he wanted to be white, would we endorse that? I don't think so. What we'd want to do is say, what's going on with this kid that's making him feel like it would be better to be white? You can see how a key part of reparative therapy then is trying to counsel somebody in their desires and understand why they want to transition in their gender identity. Or take it from Paul McHugh. He's the former psychiatrist in chief at John Hopkins Hospital. He was a pioneer in sex reassignment surgery. He was doing this 30, 40 years ago. And he ended the practice when he came to believe he was doing more harm than help. And I'll quote him on this. He says, if we don't do liposuction on anorexics, why are we comfortable amputating healthy genitals for those with gender dysphoria? He writes, and these are his words, I concluded that to provide a surgical altercation to the body of those unfortunate people was to collaborate with a mental disorder rather than to treat it. This is tragic. This is tragic. Okay, so these are the two different approaches so far. You have a affirmative therapy, you have reparative therapy, one seeking to alter the body, the other seeking to treat or counsel the mind, and yet there is another approach to gender dysphoria that I need to cover, and it is this. It is to say that rather than the mind being sick, or rather than the body being sick, it is society that is sick. And so this approach then, it, it extends the sort of base theory of, of affirmative, the affirmative approach, which is to say that gender is a social construct, it's just in our minds, and so the solution or the treatment is to remove gender binary, to remove male and female distinctions altogether. Does that make sense? You follow me? Listen to Kate Bornstein. A, she's considered a foundational voice in the queer trans community. Um, and this quote is from her book, Gender Outlaw. It's considered a sort of Bible of the movement. So I read it, and here's what she says. She says, I'm called gender dysphoric. That means I have a sickness, a limited understanding of gender. I don't think that's it. 
I like to look at it like I was gender dysphoric for my whole life before and for some time after my gender change, bullied into blindly believing in the gender system. But as soon as I came to the understanding about the constructed nature of gender and my relationship to the system, I ceased being gender dysphoric. Do you see what our solution is here? Okay. The problem isn't me. The problem is the society, and it's the gender binary in the society. And so, quote, it needs to be done away with or at least disempowered. Listen to another. This is Judith Lorber. Uh, Lorber. She's a uh, feminist, and she says this. She says, I long for the day when we no longer ask boy or girl in order to start gendering an infant. When the information is as irrelevant as the color of a child's eyes, only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. Whoa. And when this happens, there will be no more need for gender at all. You see what's happening under the transgender umbrella. This is a large, large umbrella. For some, it's a mismatch between their mind and body. For others, though, this is about equal belonging and acceptance within society. There are many reasons that people come under this umbrella. And for that second one, equal acceptance and belonging in society, and for the first one, there's something that undergirds it that is the same, and that is that finding my true, authentic self, knowing who I really am, it's no one else is going to determine that for me. It's not going to be my body. It's not going to be my society. It's certainly not going to be any church or religious figure or God. It's going to be me who looks inside and finds my true authentic self. Do you see that? But I want you to see there's a narrative here. There is a narrative here. There's a story here of suffering and resolution. It's a sort of gospel. And it goes like this. That my true authentic self has been suppressed. It's been suppressed either by this body that I wear like a suffocating costume or it's been repressed by those gender binaries and the expectations attached to them out there. And so I need to break free. And in order to break free, I need to look inside myself, find who my true self is, and only then can I find true wholeness and belonging when I alter or change my identities and self to accommodate to that. You see that? But is this going to work? Does this gospel actually offer the wholeness and the belonging that we're so desperately looking for? Are body and our binaries really the offender here? What does Christianity have to say? I'll go through two things. Theologically, what does the Bible say about gender? And pastorally, how do we respond to the trans community. Theologically, what does the Bible say about gender? And it's really important that I say, when I ask the question, what does the Bible say about gender, I'm not thinking about the Bible as some sort of arbitrary set of rules. I'm thinking about the Bible as a story, a true and better story than the story we just saw in which Jesus is offer, able to offer and only able to offer the acceptance and the belonging that we're looking for. And this story starts in the beginning with creation. And so let's, let's look at that. Genesis 1 and 27. This is a foundational text. It keeps coming up in this series. Genesis 1, 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so there you have it. God creates male and female. See, when God created the universe, he said it was good. But when God creates humanity as male and female, he says, very good. He says we're created also in the image of God as male and female. You see, to be created in the image of God means that your identity then has nothing to do with what you feel or what you think. It has nothing to do with what anybody else feels or thinks. Your identity rather has everything to do with what God feels and thinks about you. It's about his word that's spoken over you. And so instead of your identity being something that is fluid and always changing, your identity is something that is sure and firm and fixed and secure in God. Male and female, he made them, and he called it very good, and he said, it is fixed. And so we are to honor our bodies as a masterpiece, as sacred, 
Let me give you an illustration I've heard about this before. Think about it like sculpting. You got, let me use two different images. You have Plato and you have Michelangelo's David. You know, I'm talking about that famous statue of naked David. It's beautiful, but whatever. Okay. <laughs> Plato. Okay, we've all played with Plato. I give my, I have a, a couple small children, you give them Play-Doh, and you, you, know, you have these different blobs, and they're like different colors, and you take a little bit of this color, a little bit of that color, some of this blob, some of that blob, and you mix it all together, and you make something out of it, right? And what happens if you get bored or you don't like it? Squish it all together and start again, right? I want you to recognize this is what culture thinks about us. This is about this is how we're thinking about ourselves, right? That it's up to us to make ourselves who we are. And I see the allure of it. We have authority and control. We think over ourselves and who we can be. But do you see the burden of it, of having to continuously remake yourself, always unsure if your feelings are going to change, the burden of self-identifying? Plato. This is where Plato is different from Michelangelo's David. You see, no one goes to see Michelangelo's David with the intention of, of, of taking a chisel to it or whatever with Plato and cutting it down. No, the intended goal when you, you go see Michelangelo's David is you go, whoa. You admire and honor it as beautiful, as a masterpiece. And that's who you are. God created you. He is the master sculptor. Honor the good, the very good masterpiece as male and female. He has created you. It is sacred. It is good. That whether you feel like you're male or female, or a male that feels like a female, or a female that feels like a male, you are God's very good masterpiece. You need to hear that. You're not the product of some blind forces. You're not the product of social construction. You are the creation, the masterpiece of an eternal, almighty, beautiful God. Male and female, he made you very good. Honor it in its beauty. Listen to how David says it in Psalm 139. Different metaphor, same idea. I love this, so I'll read it. Psalm 139, uh, 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My friends, God knit you together, your inward parts, your body and your soul, your body and your mind intended to be his very good masterpiece, a psychosomatic whole. You see from this then, in the Christian worldview, that matter matters. The body matters. Matter masters. You're, matter matters. You're not ghosts, to use the phrase of someone, somewhere I heard this once. You're not ghosts inhabiting machines. Okay, you are embodied beings intended to be this unified whole. God knit you together as his sacred masterpiece. And so I want you to then recognize gender theory for what it really is. It is nothing but a very old idea, Gnosticism rebranded. The idea that your mind and your feelings triumph and are the true you and are greater than the body with which you possess. Okay, here it's slogans. Autonomy, uh, anatomy is not destiny. It's what's between the ears and not what's between the legs that matters. Okay, you hear the Gnosticism in that. Here's how one non-binary person said it. It doesn't matter what living meat skeleton you've been born in. It's what you feel that defines you. So your body in this view, in this Gnostic view, is viewed as a hunk of Plato, not a sacred masterpiece. In contrast to this, 
Christianity in the phrase of Nancy Piercy, a theologian, says in contrast to that, we are to love our bodies. We are to honor our bodies, that our bodies are part of the creation, the good creation that God made and intended, and it has purpose. And so creation speaks, your body speaks, biological sex and gender can be observed objectively. It is not subjective in the mind. And so biological sex and gender identity are not fragmented and unrelated like we saw in the gender unicorn, okay? But they are meant to be knit together as a unified whole. And yet, this isn't what we see and experience around us, is it? It's not what we experience, right? We don't experience wholeness between our minds and our bodies. We don't experience healthy gender relationships in society that result in people experiencing belonging and acceptance. And this is because the biblical view of what's going on here, it doesn't just end in creation where I started at the beginning of the Bible. It continues on into a story of what creations call the fall. Okay, and this is what we, that, that what we experience now is disordered, and that disorder has affected everything, okay? Everything, everyone, not just people who experience gender dysphoria, as tragic as that is, we too are all disordered. We too, as a masterpiece, have become obscured. We are obscured because of the fall, but we are not obliterated because of the fall. Okay, all is not so completely lost that we can just fall into these categories as fixed. Let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew uh, chapter 19. Jesus uh, reaffirms the designed intention of gender binary in Matthew chapter 19. He says this. After he reaffirms the creation design, he says, Have you not read that he created them in the beginning, male and female? So he reaffirms the design, the intended design as gender binary. And then he goes on to say this. I do not want you to miss this. As part of the same discussion, Matthew 19 and 12, he says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men and eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The latter two we were talking about last week. I want to focus on that phrase. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Okay, this is Bible talk for people who don't fit easily into biological or gender categories. Intersex conditions and gender dysphoria are nothing new. And I want you to see from this text that you are not invisible. Okay, Jesus doesn't pretend you don't exist. He sees you. He does. So this is the fall and its consequence, and it's affected everything. How did this happen? The fall was that we desired the knowledge of good and evil. We pursued that. We wanted to determine things for ourselves, and so we took authority, defining ourselves. We chose Plato over the masterpiece. And the consequence of that was that if you remember in the story of the garden, they're naked and unashamed. They're comfortable with their bodies. They go naked and ashamed. They feel awkward about their bodies. It's a consequence of the fall. The fall has affected our minds. We're susceptible to psychological problems. Our desires are not always what is best for us. The fall has affected our bodies. Paul talks about all of creation being subjected to futility and not only creation, he says, but we ourselves, the image he gives is of, of, of birth pangs. What's birth pangs? That's the extremely agonizing experience of two things that feel like they're being torn apart. The fall has affected our minds and our bodies, and it's agonizing, and God recognizes it, and he sees it. Are you here and struggling with body image? Do you feel like you look at yourself in the mirror and wish that God had created you differently? Are you here and you're struggling with trying to determine who you are, your identity. You've invented it and reinvented it again and again and again. And it feels like it keeps changing and it's exhausting. What are you going to do? 
Is that gospel working for you? Let me show you a better gospel. Jesus, Jesus, the creator. The creator steps into his creation and he takes on a human body. This is the ultimate dignification of the human body. Jesus, the creator who belonged in heaven and in heaven was fully accepted and in a place of wholeness and delight, chose to by stepping in and taking on that body, enter our disorder and our distress and experience the suffering that you and I so often experience. Jesus knew distress. He really knew distress. He knew distress in the mind and he knew distress in the body. Man, he was mocked. People, people hated his identity. They hated who he stood for. His body was riddled with beating. It was crucified. It was put up on a tree. Man, Jesus faced distress. It's been said that not only did Jesus face distress, no one ever faced greater dysphoria than the person of Jesus. He wasn't just beaten and mocked and his identity not taken seriously. He took on sin, your sin, if you'll give it to him. He took on sin, the perfect son of God. What incredible dysphoria he must have experienced in himself in that moment. All of heaven and earth colliding in that moment on him. No greater dysphoria has been experienced by him. He took on sin so that what? So that you might become the righteousness of God. That's amazing. Man, Jesus' body was broken so that your body could be made whole, if not here, there, in heaven forever. That's what he's done for you. He became the perfect sacrifice. He gave his body holy. That's what we mean when we say sacrifice. He gave his body holy to take on sin, our sin. And so you can see even in that, what's the root problem? The root problem is not binaries. The root problem is not body. The root problem is disorder in sin. And Jesus took that on. That's a better gospel. It's a better gospel because it means that true freedom is not found in the absence of gender binaries. True freedom is found in knowing what Jesus says over you, that you are my beloved child. Finding your identity in him, submitting to him, that's true freedom. It is not the absence of restrictions. It's knowing who you are in Christ. That is true freedom. And this is where that text, Romans 12, 1, comes in that we started with. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your spiritual worship. Man, Jesus has gone ahead of us in doing that. He's given his body as a living sacrifice. And so we follow him in surrendering all we are to him. Not in an atonement sense, but in a worship sense. Our sins have been paid. This is just an act of worship in response to him. He's given everything for us. He was broken for us. His body was broken for us so that we could be made whole in him spiritually. But there's more to that. And so you can entrust yourself to him. You can entrust your whole body to him. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says this, you are not your own. But you were bought with a price. Therefore, I glorify God in your bodies. Or here, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed. That's true transformation. True transformation. True transformation does not start with, with body modification and gender expression. That's outward trying to work its way inward. True transformation starts when the spirit of God encounters your human spirit and that changes you from the inside out. You'll never be the same. Things change. Your desires change. Not necessarily, but they can. But that's not even what the most important part of it is. Yes, you've been free from your sin, okay? But Jesus doesn't promise us pain-free lives. This is a really important part of what I'm saying here. Jesus doesn't promise us pain-free lives, but he does promise us what happened to him. What happened to him? He rose again. He rose again. He's resurrected. And the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead wants to come and live in you. And so Jesus doesn't promise us pain-free lives. He promises empowered lives by his Holy Spirit so that we can face 
the distress, so that we can face the suffering, so that we can face the dysphoria and live in submission to him. That's better. It's worth it. It's actually worth it. Because he's better. His belonging and his acceptance is so much better than any acceptance or belonging anyone else can give you or you can give yourself. That's fluid. It will be gone one day and his will never end. Praise God. Jesus is worth it. And it doesn't end here, guys. There's more. Okay? Jesus, when he was raised to life again, it was that what Paul says, the first fruits of a new creation, of the resurrection. It's like the first apple on the tree at harvest. You look at it and you say, there's, there's a bunch more like that coming. Jesus was raised to life again with a physical body and it maintained his maleness. Jesus will be gendered forever as a male in eternity. There's something coming. There's a sure hope that your distress will not last forever. He doesn't promise us complete healing here, but he does promise us complete healing there and an earth renewed and so of all people knowing the tension we live in now between that there and the future heaven the earth renewed which is what that is our bodies renewed matter mattering because of that jesus showing us what it's going to look like we live in that tension knowing all of that and yet still sometimes experiencing that distress here and yet his spirit empowers us to get through it Heaven is our home. And so of all people, Christians should know what it's like to feel like not at home here or in their bodies. <laughs> and that's something. Belonging is found in him. Jesus, you know, let me say like this. You know, the year my mom died, um, I went away to a camp for a few weeks in the summer. And I also have five siblings and I was after being away for a few weeks, I was really excited to get home, back to my house. And so I drove really fast from the airport back to the house. I got home at like two in the morning, I came in the door, and I realized when I came in the door, no one's home. All my siblings were at other cool summer activities. Obviously mom was gone. And I had the strangest feeling, a feeling not at home in my own home. And it was in that moment I realized, you know at home, is a lot less about the what of circumstances and a lot more about the who's there. And Jesus in John 15 says something a whole lot like that. The disciples ask, where are you going and how can we get there? And Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. I, and goes on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. In other words, Jesus is saying, it's not a what you're looking for. It's a who you're looking for. And so if you're looking for acceptance, if you're looking for belonging, Belonging is not found in the what of your circumstances. In this, it's found in him, in the who, knowing him, encountering him. Not a gender transition. Won't you come home? Won't you come home to Jesus? He offers you freedom, acceptance, belonging. If you turn from yourself and turn to him, say, I'm done with me. I give it up. I turn to you. Let's close with some of these pastoral questions. What would we say to the transgender community? Actually, this one's probably more broad. Is gender binary or fluid? I'm going to be cheeky. Yes. Is it binary? Yes. Wait, what, what is it? God's designed intention for gender was binary, and he calls that very good. But our lived experience of it, in many cases, feels fluid. Does that make sense? So the question then becomes, should I define myself by God's designed intention or what I experience? And what I'd say to it is this, okay? We saw Jesus, right, who has resurrected the first fruits of the new creation eternally with that male gender, okay? We also see that Paul in the New Testament, or yeah, Jesus is seen as the future brought into the present, that's who he is. And so we're like, this is what the future is going to be like, right? The first fruits. And so a lot of the New Testament teaching becomes like this. Paul basically says, live in the present as if you are already living in the future. Live out that future heavenly reality now in the present. And so that's his whole argument. Singleness is better. Don't take other Christians to court because you're going to judge the angels in heaven. That's a 
live in the present like you're living in the future. And the same is true of our, our sexual gender identities, okay? Live in the present as if it was the future. Embrace the body that God has given you as an objective reality, as very good, a masterpiece, sacred, his design and his gift for you. But what if, though, you don't fit in? You're like, I, I don't fit in with those male gender stereotypes. I don't fit in with those female gender stereotypes. Well, that's fine, because let me tell you this. I don't believe the Bible promotes gender stereotypes. Look at it like this. Was David more manly when he played the harp or when he killed Goliath? Was the Proverbs 31 woman more womanly when she bought and sold land or when she sewed clothes? Was Jael, the, the one who pounded the stake through that guy's head, more female or male in that action? That is not a relevant question to the biblical text. Was Jesus more manly when he turned tables or when he cried over Jerusalem like his lost children? The Bible doesn't promote gender stereotypes. And so we shouldn't be promoting restrictive and repressive gender stereotypes on people that are not biblical either, okay? Here's what I think the Bible does promote, okay? It's through things like the biblical prohibition on cross-dressing in Deuteronomy, the differentiation of roles in worship in 1 Corinthians. The Bible is basically saying that gender is distinctive but not interchangeable, okay? Each culture is going to express it differently within its time, but it's really there. It is a reality that really exists as very good and given by God. It never changes. That narrative never changes throughout Scripture, okay? I, the way that I think about it might be this, okay? I, I googled how many genders are there in 2022, and Ask Dude told me there was 112, and so if you think about it as a bunch of rubber bands, there's like this infinite number of rubber bands, genders you can become and express yourself and make yourself out what you want to be. That's the Plato view. But I think the biblical view is a lot more like you have two rubber bands. And those rubber bands are large and very elastic and they can overlap and they stretch. But nonetheless, there's only God designed and intended for two. And so we're to fight in his power to embrace those. What would you say to a family or friend, or someone with gender dysphoria. I want to end. Uh, I want to end with these pastoral points that God sees you. Okay, you are not invisible to God. No, He sees you, and because of that, He enters. He doesn't just see you. Okay, He He enters into your distress. If If you're here and you've been excluded, bullied, whatever, let me tell you, he wants to sympathize with you in your weakness. He wants to enter into your distress with you. Jesus is not aloft and uncaring. He cares and he's there. Okay, God cares. You're not invisible to him. And because of that, we care. The church is called to care, to listen, to enter in, to sympathize, to have compassion, to pray. God sees you. We're called to care. Another thing I would want to say is that what I've been saying, affirmative therapy offers, it's, it's a false hope. It's a false gospel. Acceptance, belonging, identity are not found in affirmative therapy, okay? They're found in Jesus Christ alone. It's that inside to out transformation, not that outside to in transformation, okay? Another thing I'd want to say is lay down, like we're called to lay all of our lives down, our bodies down as a living sacrifice. Lay that down. If this is a struggle for you, bring it to Jesus. Put it before him and say, oh God, help me. And I promise you he will. It might not be easy, but he will meet you in that place. And know that in that, dysphoria is not sinful. Okay, it's not. It's how you respond to it that is. And he promises you the Holy Spirit to take you through that. Like, like any Christian is promised the Holy Spirit to take through what they have. He doesn't promise you healing, but he promises you that. And Jesus is ultimately the answer. And while Jesus is ultimately the answer, you find acceptance, freedom, and belonging in him. It doesn't do away with the fact you're going to need counseling, probably, and you're going to need community. And so I want to encourage you to those things, counseling and community. But when I say counseling, again, I'm not saying affirmative therapy. Honor 
God's masterpiece as sacred. Okay, you are intended to be an embodied whole. You know, sex reassignment surgeries, the statistics show, do not help long-term. The statistics are short-term. Long-term statistics, anxiety, depression, and suicide stats, they don't go down. It's ultimately not the solution, guys. In the news just a month ago, Tavistock Clinic, it was the only gender reassignment clinic in the UK under the National Health Service. They have a social health care plan like we do here. It got shut down because it was sued to the ground. Over a thousand patients, former patients and parents. The report said that there was irreparable damage done to these people's lives. That is tragic. Guys, my friends, oh man. The solution is not affirmative therapy. The solution is Jesus Christ. Okay, if you don't hear anything else today, turn to Jesus. Okay, that's, that's all I care about. He's so much better than this. And I say this not to minimize the depth of distress you're going through and experiencing. Okay, I don't say this to minimize it at all. But I say it to say, Jesus loves you, he's for you, and he wants to give you what's best. And so let's submit to his word in that. Finally, for the church, let's welcome, extend great patience and compassion. Let's maintain our convictions as well. Let's not turn aside from what the Bible says, what God says about us, because that's ultimately what's good, what brings fulfillment and flourishing. Um, another thing is that nobody should walk alone, okay? Come alongside in care of your friends or who are struggling. And if it's you who's struggling, seek care. The final thing I'll say to the church is this, okay? In having these conversations with people, it's become aware, uh, it's become apparent to me that one of the biggest struggles people in the church generally have with this topic is the thought that God could call somebody else to a much higher standard of discipleship, if you would have it a much higher calling, a much more difficult calling, a much more isolating calling or repressive calling or whatever calling. It just seems so high. It seems so impossible. How could God call them to that, that bigger call? And let me say this to you. This is Sam Albury more or less or something like this. He says, man, if you think that that's a bigger call, if you think that there's some called to some uniquely more difficult call, you know what? You do not know what it means to take up your cross and follow him. Man, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. All of you, for all of him, that is not a different, harder calling. It is a unique calling, but that same hard calling falls on you. And if you think that your Christian faith is going to be a complacent and comfortable existence, and that's somehow a harder calling, you do not know what it means to take up your cross and follow Christ. And you need the Holy Spirit right now to change your heart and see that when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come, die. Lay down your lives. Be a living sacrifice. That's your honorable and good worship. Rest and belonging are found in Jesus. Jesus said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you ready to come home? I want you to join me in prayer. Jesus, I thank you that you invite us home to be with you. Home is not about the circumstances of our body. It's not about repressive gender categories. It's about you, Jesus. Oh, spirit of the living God, have mercy on us who have tried to, to, to turn aside from your call on our lives. Help us, God, to surrender ourselves completely to you. Hold nothing back in Jesus' name. Jesus, I give you my body. Jesus, I give you my identity. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill me now and empower me to live for you no matter the cost. In Jesus' name, you are worth it, oh God. Spirit, we need you. Amen.